0: this is rdqi it's tuesday and you know what that means we've got a brand new episode for you today i asked ryan how do we value an idea my idea was that we would get into a conversation about information in the digital age but turns out that that idea wasn't worth much at all because instead of touching on that in any way we make a hard left turn into the nature of value itself and how economic theory has attempted to quantify what value is throughout history. Remember how fascinating Econ 101 was? <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't say that with a straight face. Uh, please don't get turned off by the idea of economics. The principles of economics, I mean, they impact virtually every aspect of our life, and they can actually be kind of interesting. Uh, But you've got to remove the, frankly, absurd amount of technical jargon that goes along with the study. (sighs) I mean, why state a simple fact when you can just invent a bunch of fancy words to describe simple concepts and then represent them on a graph for no reason? Well, in this episode, Ryan and I try and cut through that nonsense and talk plainly about one of the fundamental pillars around which our entire world is based. Hope you enjoy the show.
1: This episode of R.D.Q.I. is brought to you by Café Peter. You want to come in and burn your face off? Well, we got the spices, meatballs, and not to mention the Fire Phoenix sandwich. Yes, that's right. The Fire of Phoenix. So hot, it's going to burn your face off. Café Peter, located at Raymond and Washington Drive.
0: Ryan, how do you value an idea? Huh. Well, that would depend on
1: what the idea is i guess so if let's say my wife had the idea to go get tacos for dinner tonight there's a lot of ways i could evaluate therefore give value to that idea and it'd be a i'm hungry in this case right now i actually am very hungry tacos sound great to me but then i would immediately be thinking to a certain price range do i want um you know three dollars a taco, or do I want $1 a dollar a taco-tacos? And those are two different restaurants that we're talking about. In this current moment, I would say the one dollar taco is my route, <clears throat> just because I don't need that high-toned taco. But that's just me talking from this one moment in time. It's, and that's a pretty insignificant idea. So, I think what you're really getting at is big ideas, revolutionary ideas even, how do we actually evaluate them? And this is where I think intellectual property law is kind of fascinating because um, there's a clear imperative in our American system that you have to defend your intellectual property. Um, mm-hmm. So you could even express monetization of an idea by your legal cost, you might be able to say.
0: think about like the the whole Apple infrastructure, you know, what's that idea worth? Quite a bit. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, there's
1: evaluation of that you know, it changes every day if you're looking at the stock market. But um, so, Dave, this the stock market is essentially a real time analysis of a business's value as long as it's publicly traded. Is that
0: a fair statement? Uh yes. Um, there's there's also an element of of the like the the future value or the future potential. Uh, uh. But but yeah, more or less, it's it's the value of a business.
1: Gotcha. And that's I mean it's not purely speculative because there's a lot of math and calculation that goes into it. But
0: at the end of the day, it's gambling, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, there there are a number of different metrics you can measure on like market cap, um, uh, you know, future and potential cash flow. And you could have businesses with, you know, Uh, high scores in one, low scores in the other that are still very, very successful. And you could have the direct, uh, you know, complete opposite metrics in another business and they're also successful or they're both failures, right? So there is an element of speculation. It's like, do I think this metric is going to lead to business success for this firm or do I think it it won't or it will have little bearing? Mm, I gotcha. That makes a lot of sense to me. Right. So it's speculative. (laughs) Insofar as Wall Street makes sense, but yeah. Well, yeah, that's another episode. That's another topic <laughs> <laughs> that's actually
1: just a different podcast really um yeah but that so that's interesting though because I mean obviously we're talking about real time hard assets of a business. well, typically a business will have art hard assets, although there's a lot of soft assets that that are there as well but i mean let's let's pivot to a different line of thinking i mean um a researcher let's hey, we know a highly trained PhD can well, former PhD candidate who is a doctor now who did some speculative research essentially in the material sciences field. He had to convince with his peers that were working on the study um, academics who supported the study as well as any financial compensation they needed to perform the study. So how do you quantify the value of a speculative scientific theory?
0: I, I see what you're getting at, right? So, so let me, let me, just phrase it a different way. If, if, you know, if we go back to our business example, if, you know, Apple invests in, in research or or funds research, um, to enhance their products. And the reason that they do that is because they can take the, that enhanced product and they can, you know, uh, sell it and make, you know, more money, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's an investment in, um, some form of asset that's going to produce more money down the line. But with like academic research, y- you know, you're essentially investing in um, something that really is open-ended and doesn't necessarily have a defined outcome or goal. So when Apple invests, it has a projected ROI or return on investment that says, hey, we're going to invest a million, but that idea that we generate is going to be worth a billion. And so, of course, this is a great deal. We're going to spend this money. But how do you decide to spend money on something that might come to nothing? Right. And
1: actually, as, a, as an audio engineer, I have a really great example of this. Um, there was an Austrian physician who way, way, way back in the 19th century um, was studying basically binary star systems. So imagine, you know, our current star system that we're in, in the uh, revolves around the sun. It's a single star. Now imagine there's two suns, and by the force of their gravity, they're revolving around each other. This exists across the universe probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times over. Um, So, this Austrian physicist, for some reason, decided, you know what, I'm just going to look at binary star systems. And he eventually released a paper, um, give me one second, thank you, internet, Um, that in English would be translated as, On the Colored Light of the Binary Stars and Some Other Stars of the Heavens.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I have to think about that title for a bit. What?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you want to hear the German, it's even better, but let's not get there yet. So, this Austrian scientist was basically looking at stars. So, imagine if um, you are sitting at home and you're looking at uh, essentially like a merry-go-round. But on the merry-go-round, there are only two spheres, okay? So, they're revolving in a circle around a fulcrum that is far away
0: from you, right? Got it. Yep. Yep. So what he detect- so a, a salt and pepper shaker at opposite ends of a lazy susan, you know, a circular thing, and it's spinning around. Bam! There we go. So what he what he noticed is that when a
1: star would move towards the viewer, in his case towards Earth, essentially, its light frequency, therefore the color the eye detects, was different than when that st- same star would move away from the Earth. And this was groundbreaking, right? Because up until this point. It didn't really make any sense. But now we know it as the Doppler effect. Christian Doppler is the physicist I'm talking about. And we all know what the Doppler huh. effect is. Let me just explain <laughs> it to you this way. When you're outside in the street and you hear an ambulance coming and then it drives past you and it goes away from you, you will audibly detect a increase in pitch of the ambulance, of its siren at least, as it comes
0: close to you, and a decrease in pitch... As it goes away from you, yep, yeah, and and right, and everybody knows that it's you know it's think of an ambulance as it drives by you, you know it just it changes in in frequency. It's still emitting the same sound, but its position relative to you is what's changing that the way that it hits your ears and and exactly which I guess I've never really thought about. I think at one point I knew how that that works, but like what. If you can, just like, very succinctly describe what is going on there. Yeah. From I mean, an audio it, perspective.
1: Yeah. So basically, um, the speed of sound is constant, right? Same thing with the speed of light. Um, now, mm-hmm. having said that, the speed of sound can be interfered with by humidity, temperature, a ton of other atmospheric conditions, as where light, that's not quite the case. But that's being semantic. So. As a, sound is, as a sound source, in this case, the siren on an ambulance moves towards you, think of it simply this way. As the ambulance is, ambulance is moving at 10 miles an hour, it's emitting a sound that travels at 340 meters per second. On average, that's the speed of sound. So, mm-hmm. take the 340 miles per meters per second and add 10 miles per hour to it, you are changing the speed of sound, essentially. Because that's how it is being launched at the listener, if you will. It's a that's technically not accurate, but for the sake of this conversation, that's fine. And then, as it moves away mm. from you, technically the speed of that sound, or the frequency in which it hits the human ear that's listening to it, changes. And frequency determines pitch. That's why basses have super low frequencies. And then you sing falsetto, and it's uh, way up there in a different register.
0: All that is is you got. All- mm-hmm. I just wanted to comment on your angelic voice. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. I Sorry. appreciate that. Sorry, go ahead. That's, so that's
1: essentially what's going on. And this physician, I keep saying physician, this physicist discovered <laughs> this in, I believe, the 1840s, if I'm not mistaken. Now, what does this have to do with anything, right? The answer is, if we didn't have a component understanding of how the Doppler effect works, ultrasounds would not be a reality. If ultrasounds were not a reality... Then we wouldn't be able to non invasively look at a human body and try to see if there's any risk for stroke uh, any hypertension in the body aneurysms in the body, any vascular disease or deep vein thrombosis you can think of I mean the list goes
0: on I'm, so so that's why you're yeah well, that's why you're thinking physician i mean it's really it revolutionized uh medical testing you know we can we can de- determine all of these. Uh, you know, hidden anomalies within the body now because of ultrasounds. Exactly. But in 1840, that is not what Christian Doppler was trying to
1: achieve. That wasn't his end. But how valuable is that idea? And I would say it's invaluable. The amount of lives that have been saved, or at least bettered because of this technology. I mean, personally, I would say you can't put a quantity on that.
0: And I would extrapolate that out to say that so much of our technological innovation has been compounded and built upon these discoveries that a in a a free market um, economic system a business would never invest would never pay Doppler to sit around and look at stars because maybe he's going to discover something groundbreaking that's going to change the way that medicine is practiced today but but you know, so much of what we do is built upon just those building blocks of, you know, things that, <sighs> by some stroke of luck, <laughs> mm-hmm. there was there was some um, speculative money or or honestly just some foolishly placed money um, or foolish bets, foolish investments that panned out. Um,
1: yeah, or you. You could simplify by saying, you know, Sir Isaac Newton said, I see so far because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Without that incremental gain of knowledge, you don't have giants to stand on.
0: So where I get caught up um, it is this actually this actually makes me think of something I've been thinking a lot about recently, um, and that's economic theory. And <laughs> I've, I've been thinking about it because I'm a huge loser. Um, <laughs> Easy. Easy. <laughs> Like who who does that in their spare time, right? The economists? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> um so economic theory is like it is fascinating because it seeks to define this like man-made system of how we establish trade and how we conduct trade. Um, and it's fascinating because it's something that like doesn't really actually exist, but there's all these uh, you know interesting causes and effects when certain things happen in an economic system. On um, the inverse of that, it is also notoriously uh, a very <laughs> complex and overly simplistic way of defining um, just a incredibly complicated natural phenomenon um so if you take a look at a supply and demand graph you can you can you know in search engine (laughs) look up a supply and demand graph um if you haven't if you haven't seen it it's uh it's basically an x and y axis uh axes with uh price on one axis and um quantity on the other and then there is a supply line and a demand line and they intersect right so the one line is is uh, uh the curve is positive the other curve is negative um so it's essentially looks like an x with a with a middle point mm-hmm. um <laughs> economics is notorious for using like very complicated graphical systems to explain theories that are pretty intuitive if you think about it like it's it's so overly complicating what is essentially pretty simple that most people can grasp. Um, and that is kind of awful because, you know, economics at a certain point gets very, very convoluted, but the, the basic principles are sort of shrouded in purposefully confusing terminology and graphs. <laughs> yeah. Um, and economics so determines our livelihood in so many ways. Well, it is our livelihood. If, if livelihood is, you know... Uh, providing resources for your, your family. Um, you know, unless you are extricating yourself from the economic game completely, which means you have gone completely off grid and you raise all your own food and you don't participate in any trade whatsoever. Otherwise you're participating in the economic system, right? You go buy toilet paper that is participating in the, you know, the economic system. So, the, the fundamental building block of economics is that there are these two forces and the relation between the two determine price or what I would term as value, right? So supply, which is basically um, the number of a good or service and and the scarcity of that good or service, and then demand, which is a little bit easier to understand, right? It's It's how badly... People want a good or a service
1: sure so, so if I have ten bananas and there's ten people in the room with me so a total of eleven people there's not one banana per person so there's gonna be some level right. of competition for who is essentially not gonna get the banana
0: right if, if the demand is everybody wants a banana and you know, there's, there's a scarcity. So there's one person who's not going to get a banana. That's going to drive up the price so that the essentially the poorest person won't get a banana. Right. Um, but, but you know, that's how it, it relates to value. Now the value of the banana is higher. A good way to think about it. Um, and especially what, you know, different, different things can do in different circumstances. So toilet paper pre COVID was what we call a commodity. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, paper product it's very very easy to make there are many many companies that make it um there's very limited scarcity the demand is high everybody uses toilet paper right but Mm -hmm. but the supply was there's very equally matching yeah there's no scarcity Mm -hmm. so toilet paper's price is really low um when covid hit in america at least (laughs) uh, there was a run on toilet paper for some reason and you know, everybody flocked to the stores and all the stores ran out of toilet paper. All of a sudden, you have greatly limited the supply of toilet paper because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, while it's easy to make, there's still, it still takes time. And so all of the stores were out of it because they couldn't replenish their stocks in time. So now all of a sudden, demand remains unchanged and there's very little supply. So what does that do? Well, I mean, Technically, it did nothing because we have mechanisms in place because we don't live in a free market world. Um, but everybody, I'm sure, heard, and if you haven't, there were stories of people who were buying up toilet paper and then trying to sell it online for, you know, $100 a roll. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you know, economic theory, you know, you, the, the graphs will tell you that. But I think that's a pretty intuitive thing, right? All of a sudden, there's no toilet paper. So somebody can charge $100 for it because you still need it. And mm-hmm. people would have paid that if we didn't have laws against price gouging and all this stuff. Exactly. So that's that's sort of the building block. In investment is a little bit more complicated to dig into the technicalities of it because there's like a net present value, you know, calculation. But you're still trying to determine a value for your investment. And so traditional free market economics would say, if you're going to invest in something, it, you need to have a defined future, uh, a defined, well, it's, I guess it's a future value, a defined outcome that would make investing in that worth it. Yeah. Investing With, without goals so, is like a ship without a rudder. Yeah, so what's the what's the economic principle behind investing in something like a think tank, right? A think tank is just a group of people who are paid to sit around and do whatever they want, essentially. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the thinking is that they're going to come out with an outcome, but they might not. And the same thing with, you know, paying um, a professor to research whatever he wants. You may not get anything out of that investment. And even if you do, you you probably, you have a better chance of not getting any sort of specific ROI on that idea. I mean, you know, has there been anybody who's actually made money off of the Doppler effect? No, there's been, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been, you know, so many different things that have been have built on the Doppler effect, but that idea in and of itself is worthless without a, an avenue to create some sort of productive uh, some sort of product or service based on the Doppler effect that then has value you can sell.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. If you can't monetize it, how valuable is it to you? And that's usually, I think that would be a personal question. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that I can't monetize in my life that I value incredibly. Like my wife. I don't try to monetize her, right? But that's a different relationship. We're talking about the concept of investing in ideas and how to judge if that idea is worth investing in. And then we're in this weird paradox where it's like, well, if the formation of the idea is, or the formation is to guess about something that might not actually result in anything that increases your wealth, it becomes
0: very speculative. And then it's like, well, what's the point of it at all? Even with the benefit of hindsight, if you have a bunch of investors and you said, hey, one of us had to go back in time and invest in Doppler, but that person we know is not going to get directly rewarded for that. Right. You, you know, there's no incentive.
1: No, we'd go invest in the people who invented the MRI machine.
0: Right. And and that was, you know, something that made somebody a lot of money. Right. So that's my problem with economic theory not not economic theory because you know the study of economics you know really what it's trying to do is it's trying to understand this natural phenomenon and there's a ton of value in doing so the danger becomes when you there's so many issues with these dogmatic philosophies uh, these adherence to dogmatic or absolute philosophies mm, yep. what i mean by that is you know pure free market capitalism um you, you know libertarianism it honestly and they completely inverse communism yeah <laughs> yeah i was about to <laughs> these, say you better throw socialism in there
1: yeah
0: yeah absolutely but it, it, there are these like hard and fast rules That are based on a very incomplete body of knowledge. So, like, uh, what's a good, oh, so think of, so think about this. Newtonian physics was, you know, the final say in physics for most of the history of physics, right? Newtonian physics was how objects interacted in the physical world. That was the law until Einstein came along Mm -hmm. and proved that there were a whole subset of functions in the physical world that did not obey the laws of Newtonian physics in any way.
1: Right. And he was caught up in a conflict of like, but this has to square with Newtonian physics. And it took him a little while to figure out his concept of special relativity, which actually, incidentally he's quoted as saying he thought about this first when he was riding his bicycle at night and he'd be approaching a lamppost by lamppost by lamppost and realized as he approached light, the lamppost, and as he left light, the lamppost again, there must be a relation there, a relationship there, which is kind of a little bit what Dapa was saying too.
0: I, I was going to say that. like I, I, When you were explaining that before, I thought, isn't that relativity?
1: I mean, you could see how it is... Again, the part of the giant that Einstein stood on when he made that special relativity, uh, relativity
0: finding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Einstein, another perfect example of, you know, uh, he was doing that in his spare time. So he was essentially uh, investing his time um, in trying to figure this stuff out. But, you know, why? He didn't know what he was going to get into. Sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we had... And think about what what relativity and quantum mechanics has opened up in, in terms of the realms of possibility in technology. Mm-hmm. Um, with economics, it's sort of the same thing, you know. And we, we tend to forget this now, which is hilarious, when you hear, you know, free market uh, advocates or uh, libertarian advocates. Um, you know, for most of, uh, you know, the... Uh, I don't know when this would date back to, I guess the beginning of economics (laughs) through the 19th century free market capitalism, especially in the United States was, you know, the, the principle. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the depression came along
1: (laughs) Uh, earlier than that. I would say 1890, the Sherman antitrust act was a pretty big commitment by the United States to say free market. Is not going to work purely, right? Because I mean, the end goal of a cap- of the cap- of pure capitalism is to win the game, to be the only company
0: selling that product or service. Uh, right. Uh, that's mon- the game of monopoly is the game of capitalism. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that the game of monopoly
1: was invented by a woman who's trying to teach the ills? Of capitalism, I did. <laughs> Isn't that <I> funny? <laughs> and then it was stolen from them by her from Hasbro and monetized. I think that's beautiful in
0: a sick sort of way. It still does teach the lesson though, because how many games of Monopoly have you ever finished? None. <laughs> that's true. Because you get to a point where the game is not fun anymore, except for the one person who's winning, which I think we should talk about later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's get on that later though. Um, but so it, it, you know whether it was the antitrust act. I mean, the antitrust act was was breaking up monopolies, which is like the first the first you know um, kink in the armor of like oh okay, hang on, we do need we do need one rule, and we need to like have a way to reset the game every now and then, and that that was like the monopoly break. You know, breaking up a monopoly or breaking up. um basically one uh entity one person or entity or corporation owning an entire product line or service you know like if you because if you are a railroad company and you own all the railroads and people need to travel. You can charge whatever you want and people are going to pay it. It's, it's you know, when there are two railroad companies, now one charges an exorbitant amount. The other one says, no, 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 we're going to charge this amount. And then everybody's going to use that railroad, not the other one. Right. Um, that's why Monopoly is so dangerous. Um, but, you know, free market was still like, okay, this is sort of the thing. And then when the, the depression hit... There was no answer in traditional free market economics. Like we didn't, d- nobody knew what to do. Like, hang on, the invisible hand should come here. And it's, and sorry, the I- invisible hand is this uh, this term, not an official term, but it's this you know phrase that economic e- economists use to uh, talk about how any any sort of shift in the system, any movement in the graph, will ultimately like other things in the system will equalize to bring an equilibrium, to bring balance back to an economic system.
1: Right. There's an invisible reaction and we anthropomorphize that by saying there's an invisible hand at play here. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That's yeah. Much better, <laughs> much better description. You're, you're going to have to keep me honest, right? Cause I, uh, you know, economics is filled with esoteric jargon. And, and frankly, like I'm, I'm, You know, I studied this a little bit uh, in my university days, but I'm by no means an expert. So I'm kind of trying to, you know, learn this as I go. Um, Well,
1: that's part of what we're doing, right? Is economics has its own dialect, its own like sub language, if you will. And if you don't understand that dialect or sub language, you're not going to understand the principles that are actually governing your life, whether or not you know it. Is that something you listen are willing to do, or should you engage with it? I think that's what we're essentially trying to get at here.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you're going to have to keep me in line because it's uh, it's hard to get your head out of all the jargon they use when you start (laughs) diving down the rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, what was I? So, yeah.
1: Great Depression. The free hand, the
0: invisible hand had no answer for this. Yep. Well, hang on. You know, there's rampant unemployment, um, you know, stalled economic growth, where's the invisible hand to come and correct everything? Um, you know, we were, they were waiting for it and things just kept getting worse and worse. And then along comes this economist by the name of John Maynard Keynes, Mm -hmm. uh, who really kind of introduced the, uh, call it the quantum mechanics of economics (laughs) saying, hang on. Uh, This free market is this, you know, it's a simplified view of how the world works and how the, you know, economic systems work. And there's validity in it, certainly, but it's not the whole story. There are other forces that need to come into play because, or, or there are other, there are other variables that we do not understand or we don't even know exist that have an influence on an economic system that will cause economic systems to collapse like the f- the the invisible hand can't solve every problem right well, that's, that's where I'm going to stop. I mean, he, he invented or invented, I mean, he, that this is when like monetary policy and, um, you know, central banking and all this stuff kind of comes into existence, which I would love to dive into, frankly, for my own knowledge. Like, I don't know all that much about it and I would like to, to talk about it at some point.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's um, a great topic. One, the thing I wanted to interject in is cause this springs to mind, this other subject I've been kind of reading about in the past month is Um, Kind of associated with Newtonian physics, there was this sense of like, hey, we can understand the universe, right? Because, um, like, for instance, an example of this, before Neptune was visually sighted, two different scientists who weren't working together predicted that it existed. Just by examining, through Newtonian physics, the nature of our solar system. So you gotta think that when humans were like, dude, we just found a planet that we couldn't see yet because we said it should be there. And then we later found out, it is there. You better believe humanity was just like, oh, we got this. This is done. This is dusted. We are con- <laughs> we control our fate here. Now, there's a yeah. problem here. And the problem is, it's tied into the word determinism, which is the idea that if you have infinitely accurate calculations of every variable, you can determine the outcome of any situation. The problem is, that doesn't hold true mathematically. This is where we get the idea of the chaos theory, or, a simpler way that we all know, the butterfly effect. Will a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil cause a tornado to occur in Texas? And the answer is, there are so many things beyond our ability to predict, because even if we did have the ability to have infinite, calcu- or infinitely accurate measurements, still mathematically there is going to be what appears to be chaos injected into any complex system. So if we're talking about the economy and saying that the economy will sort itself out, you haven't really quite squared with the idea of chaos theory either.
0: Right. Economics is fundamentally a social science. You're going to tell me that you're going to have rules and laws that are always going to hold true. No, there's always going to be somebody who's going to do something totally off the wall just cause out of, out of spite, out of mental illness, out of being a hipster and having a three martini lunch. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I'd, and so really quick, I, cause I, uh, I, what you just said is, um, with the deter- determinism and chaos theory, I feel like that's that's such a like a academic way to say that things are way more complicated than we ever make them out to be you know think about the human body think about how you know for how all of human history we've been thinking about the human body and yet we don't like we we couldn't build one think about a brain you know? <laughs> right we, we know so little about how the brain works like nobody on earth could create a human brain um and and yet it it happens so like the theory is hey once we understand everything about the human brain we'll be able to build one i don't think so <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's what chaos theory says is like uh there will always like you can you can try and build rules for everything and then there will always be something that is an exception to the rule yep Hmm. yeah for our conversation at least that's exactly what chaos theory is saying and that is like my my thesis in a nutshell is you know, we have these studies that that beget these systems of rules, and we think, okay, all of these rules, here's how mathematically it you know, we've shown it to work. And then you get free market economics, and then you get the depression, which essentially would have collapsed the economy had it not been for somebody to stand up and say wait guys like we need to be we need to think about this differently and that's why i think understanding the underlying theories in your discipline however maintaining agility and maintaining mobility in your thinking so that you use them as guideposts but you don't adhere to them as specific rules. Mm, mm -hmm. This absolutism is what causes all of these terrible problems. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around right now. Cast (laughs) theory. Right. You know, you hold to these absolute principles, something's going to come along and and prove you wrong. And if you still hold to the principles, you're going to collapse the whole system.
1: Which kind of gets us back to the beginning and saying, how do you value an idea? And I think everyone what we're coming to the conclusion here might be is everyone's gonna value an idea differently.
0: And that's a really good thing. Well, I mean, I think the larger question, and I think we we should probably stick on this concept for a while, but what is value?